Hello and welcome to the Journey to the Heart podcast. My name is Torn Lokes. I'm a singer-songwriter from the Yukon Territory, Canada, and my current mission is to paddle a canoe across America from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean while learning more about what happiness, community, connection, self-empowerment, as well as finding and living your passions and dreams means to different people I meet along the way. So I have now completed my 400 mile bicycle portage through the Rockies, and despite a very old yet sturdy bike without a front derailleur, narrow, sometimes treacherous roads, and often steep, windy, and windy terrain, I had the pleasure of traversing through some incredible mountain passes, soaked in some beautiful hot springs, and met some inspiring people along the way. Upon reaching Helena, Montana, I was fortunate to be hosted by Jim and Vicki Emanuel, who along with the incredible River Angels Tom and Sue Iyer from Lewiston helped bring my canoe right to the Missouri headwaters where I met them on my bicycle before finally pushing my canoe into a downstream current. It's hard to put into words what it means to me after months of paddling and pedaling upstream to finally be paddling downstream towards the Gulf of Mexico. So much effort mentally, emotionally, and physically has gone into getting here over the last four months. And I've given up and gained so much in a process that has been truly transformational. I was also fortunate to have Jim and the Missouri River legend Norm Miller paddle with me for the first couple days from the headwaters. In this conversation, I sat down with Jim Emanuel, who along with being a retired firefighter and hypnotist, paddled the Missouri River from source to sea in 2018, the year he turned 60. We talked about canoe expeditions, transformational journeys, the power of self-hypnosis, and how to move towards living a life that you love. I also wanted to give a shout out to the very first members that have joined my new Patreon community. I put a lot of love, time, and effort into these journeys, this podcast, my music, and my other creative projects, and I deeply appreciate the support in helping cover my costs and providing greater and continued opportunity to develop and share them with you all. If you enjoy what I'm doing and want to support this podcast and other projects that I'm working on, please consider joining my Patreon community, which you can find through my website at www.tornlokes.com. Hey, Jim. Good morning. Morning. How are, how are you? Pretty good. A cup of coffee in the morning and a beautiful morning. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, tell me a bit more about yourself. Oh, well, I'm retired now for ten years uh, as a professional firefighter in Southern California, and retired and moved to uh, lucky enough to move to the middle of Montana, and been here since the last ten years. So, what is it about Montana that brought you here? Oh. Mostly the rivers and the mountains, the prairies and the open spaces, but mostly the rivers. I like I like the rivers. You uh, you grew up uh, paddling a lot. Uh, not paddling. I grew up boating, uh, and in South Dakota, mostly. Uh, you know, we had some. We had a canoe. We canoed a little bit, but mostly. Fishing, fishing boats, and and then um, in, when I went to college, I uh, started had a summer job as a river guide for a whitewater rafting company, 
in, in Colorado and Utah. And I did that for five summers. And since then, I, I became addicted to uh, whitewater rafting, big long trips, you know, anywhere from a week to three week trips. And, um, cool. That's where we spent all our vacations, is on the rivers in Idaho and Oregon and Utah, um, Colorado, Arizona, you know, floating down rivers with myself. And started going with all these guys I used to work with as a guide. And since, you know, they all kind of moved on to career jobs and got their own rafts. And um, we just started spending summers together on, on rivers. So what is it, what is it about whitewater rafting that just really drew you to it? Uh, originally it was the whitewater, you know, the thrill of the whitewater. And as the years went by, I liked uh, just more of the, uh, I don't mind running a flatwater river anymore. I, mean, I like big whitewater. It's the thrill and it's exciting and um, the, one, the one thing about running big white water is when you're in a rapid, whether it only takes two seconds or 20 seconds, it's, it's about the, the only time in your life where you're thinking about is what's happening right now this second. Your mind's not wandering anywhere, you know, but what you're doing right now, which is... I think that's why I like that. And then afterward, yeah. you could come out and flow in a few miles, and your mind wanders wherever you know wherever it goes. And then you come up to a big rapid again, and your concentration and focus is so intense about you know getting your right line and you know making some big moves in the water that you, you're living right at the moment, which you know, is what I like. About, about the white water. And then I just like the multi, multi-day river trips. You kind of get in the flow. You forget about what's going on at home. You forget about your job, your mowing the lawn or whatever, you know. Simplifies things. Yeah, simplifies your thinking just what what you're doing. So that's kind of what draw me to that. Yeah. Is that what you're doing right? Yeah, that that's, it's interesting. I agree a lot with that. I think being brought into the present moment with being on the water, it's, it's something that's really powerful, yeah. you know, because it has a way of soothing your, your worries about life and, and kind of reframing things as well, I think. It has, it has a way of refreshing and re- rejuvenating a person where you come back from a trip like that and you're like, oh, what was that that was bothering me? Right. But it doesn't, doesn't feel so bad now. <laughs> right. And life is simple on the river. You know, it's just simple. You don't, you can't, uh, you can't do anything but just where you are and you know, make it to the next camp or, or make lunch or dinner or um, try to fight the wind and make it to the next point. If you make it there, you might make it to another point. If you don't, you pull over and you don't have to go home and uh, like I said, mow the lawn or is, yeah, get yeah. going and do it again. It's true. It's like simple yet, simple yet profound and mm-hmm. in its simplicity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you, you've, uh, paddled the Missouri river 
from source to sea? Well, not source. Um, the ultimate source is Brower Spring, um, where it just bubbles out of the mountain up in the Centennial Mountains. And, um, I started at the headwaters. Okay. Yeah, where the Missouri or the uh, Missouri forms by the Gallatin, the Jefferson, and the Madison, and that's uh, probably two hundred miles down from what is actual the, the source. But the source is is tough. Um, it's basically a hike. You can't float down a two CFS coming out of the out of the mountain. And, you need um, like a like a little like blow up raft or like a kayak, no, kayak well, or something. When it comes out, I don't think you, I haven't been there, but um, it comes out, it gurgles out of the mountain. It's not even uh, you could. I think it's probably about two inches wide, and it slowly builds as it gets down into the valleys. And when I when I uh, did my trip in 2018, I originally was going to float down the start at the big hole, and it was a big flood year. And, uh, so I went up there and I was going to float about 100 miles down the big hole to the Jefferson, and then on down. And that's what I was thinking of doing as well. Yeah, <laughs> a little late in the season though. Now, well, I had so much water; um, everything was flooded, and I was going to take my whitewater raft and do that first section because I, I wanted done very well in the canoe. And I went up from there's like at least three bridges that I couldn't fit my boat under, and there were no eddies, so I would have been a runaway raft trying to two foot tall raft trying to go under, a, you know. Six inch, six inches between the top of the water and the bottom of the bridge. It would have been, wasn't even an option. So I waited it out for a couple of weeks for the water to go down, and it never did. And so finally, I put on it um, at the headwaters of the Missouri and started there. Well, it's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful area. Oh, for sure. I mean, just a few days ago when we went up there, you know, I bicycled from your house, fifty miles up there, and. You, we tried to tried to get to the Missouri River Headwaters Park, and then there's that bridge that was closed, and we put in uh, a couple miles upstream on the Jefferson, and just it's just so beautiful up there. Yeah, that was a good call. Um, hitting that bridge was perfect. Yeah, there's like the the landing was just yeah. hundred yards down. Yeah, and I had you know my goal is to get one new section of river every year. Um, that's why I only got three, three miles of it, but it was a new section of the river, and I, it was beautiful up there. I'm glad we did it. Yeah, me too. Me too. And uh, it's nice to have your little yellow lab pup, Steve, join mm -hmm. us. He seems to be a good boating companion. Yeah, he's pretty good. He's catching right on. He's pretty cool. Yeah. So what was it that inspired you to paddle the whole Missouri River? Well, you know, being a whitewater guy, my goal was always to, uh, well, not my goal, but one of the trips I always wanted to do was uh, follow John Wesley Paul's expedition from the, the headwaters or the, the Wind River Range in Wyoming um, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, or the Gulf of California, sorry. Um, and that would entail going down the Green River and into the Colorado River. And there's a lot of issues with that right now. Getting It's all, uh, there's three or four permitted sections there. 
and you have to get a permit, lucky enough to get a permit, uh, or else get on a trip that someone invites you on that has a permit. And you'd have to link all these trips together. And you have to, when you have a permit, you have to start on that day. And you only get so many days to go through this section. Like the Grand Canyon, it's almost impossible to get a private permit. And you have now 16 days to get from, um, to the Grand Canyon section. And just to say it, to tell someone, okay, I could be there July 20th, when you're starting up in the Wind River Range, it's almost impossible. Yeah. So, but that was my, that's where I still would like to do that. And, uh, but I've been, since I moved here, I spend most of my time on the Missouri River. Um, I've got various boats. And, um, so, and I would always, every year I'd see guys paddling across Canyon Ferry Lake with all this gear. And yeah. I'd talk to them and they'd tell me what they're doing. I go, oh, that's kind of cool. And, uh, um, never really thought much about myself doing it. I'm not a canoeer. And, uh, and then uh, in the August of, I think it was August of 2017, I'm up on the river um, where you're going to probably paddle through today. Up the, at basically the the delta where the river flows into Canyon Ferry is a, um, I like to fish there. And I'm anchored, and here comes this guy in a cedar um, stripper canoe with, the, he had a big yellow Labrador that was swimming behind him. And he pulled in and I was anchored and he pulled grass on my boat <clears throat> and we're talking and this, his Labrador, we probably talked for an hour and this Labrador treaded water in the, in the current the whole time. It was, it was kind of fun. And he was uh, telling me about his trip uh, going down, he started at Twin Bridges on the Jefferson, and he was going to paddle to Fort Peck Dam. And so he was just, he was a week into the trip. And, uh, he was so stoked about his trip, and I started asking him questions, and, and by the time we got done um, talking, I already made up my mind that I'm going to paddle um, the Missouri to St. Louis, just kind of on a whim. And so I got home, I was decided how I'm going to tell my wife I'm going to take next summer and paddle. <clears throat> I didn't know what kind of craft I was going to paddle. I wasn't a canoe. I thought, well, maybe I can get a drift boat because I like oars. And, um, um, so that was yet to be determined. Anyway, uh, she said, yeah, you should do it. Let's, you just go do it. So I mean, it was that easy. And so I, in, the, in the winter, I finally come to the conclusion the canoe would be a lot more efficient than a than a dory or a, or a drift boat and so I got a canoe and not, wasn't very steady in it and I, I had all winter to just look at it because it, you know it was ice here and I got it out and basically I started to learn how to paddle when I put it in that at the headwaters in a, in a canoe. <laughs> wow well I've, I've seen you paddle uh, you know since then and Seems like you've got it. You've got a pretty good stroke at this point. <laughs> well, three and a half million strokes down to the Gulf of Mexico. You learn it. I won't say I'm uh, um, technically very good, but I can move the boat. That's about it. You know, I don't even know the names of the strokes. I just paddle. You get a feel for it after yeah. thousands of miles. Yeah. So when you got down to the to the lake, I mean, the Missouri has these massive lakes. Yes. That come around. And, yes. and what was that experience like for you? Well, you start with the smaller lakes. You know, the first lake you come to, 
is Canyon Ferry, it's 25 miles long. And um, the next one is Hauser, and the next one after that is Holter. Um, and I, I'm on those lakes all the time, so I knew, I know them really well. Uh, but I still had to paddle across them, and they're all paddleable in one day, one day each. Yeah. Um, if, but they can get big, uh, especially Canyon Ferry uh, can get really big really quick. Mm. Um, but it just, it's just... Uh, just time. Yeah, yeah, and it's just a, a little practice for what, when you get to the real lakes, <laughs> <laughs> starting at Fort Peck, and then Sakakawi, and then, and then the Oahe is the, is the one that really gave me a time. Oahe, how long is Oahe? I think it's about 240 miles or so. Wow. It basically starts at Bismarck and goes to Pier. Uh, you know, halfway across, it turns, and the, so the thing about Hawaii is <clears throat> that, you know, South Dakota is a windy, windy, windy. And when you get to Bismarck, that river turns south, and you have a prevailing south wind. And, you know, Fort Peck is big, and that can be really big and windy and dangerous, and same with the Sakakawea. But they're, uh, they have like some canyon walls, kind of like, where Oahe is just a big open prairie lake and it gets... There's no protection. It's huge. Yeah. So you can't like cut corners from point to point. You gotta kind of stick on the... Sh if you're smart, you kind of stick on the shoreline because the wind can come up out of nowhere and you don't really want to be three miles out from shore. Right, I can see it being tempting to want a you know, straight line yeah. certain aspects of that yeah. and just yeah. having to navigate the sort of windy shoreline. Oh, you could go, I mean, I mean if you follow the shoreline, you know, um, especially on Peck, because Peck, Peck is like a big amoeba. It's got all these arms. It's, I think it's got more shoreline than the west coast of the United States. So it would take you probably a year or more to follow the whole shoreline. So you have to cut, you have to cut from point to point. Wow, so you're saying... That that lake near Fort Peck has more sh shoreline than the entire coast of the United States. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. I think so. Dave Forbes has been spending the last three summers going along the shoreline to try to, try to circumnavigate that whole lake, and um, well, he's doing that right now. In the summers, he's he's trying to get that done. Jeez. So what I would do is, um, I wouldn't go unless the wind was blowing in the right direction, and I would come up to a point and I look across and I, and I might not go exactly point to point, but I try to pick a little bit of a compromise, and I pick that point and once I start paddling, I just, I just tell myself. So if you get out in the middle, and you might well, you might want to say, well, I'm out here, it's nice and calm, maybe I'll just fudge a little bit, you know what I mean, and, and go a little bit farther out than that point. But I just kept telling myself, and you might save a half mile. So I kept telling myself, okay, go straight across, don't mess around. No matter, and I keep telling myself, okay, don't mess around, go straight across. And you get to the, yeah. you get across, and you go, ooh, made it. You paddle along the shore. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, and then kind of go out to the next point and then go across. And because uh, <clears throat> they have these little microbursts out there, and, and 
they can, I mean, they can, you can be dead flat and in 30 seconds you have a 40 mile an hour wind just coming out of nowhere. And if you're out in the middle, you're not in a good spot. Well, heck, when we were paddling from the headwaters, right. that, that happened to us. Right. <laughs> and that's when the river is like, you know, pretty narrow and coming around that corner from the Tostin Dam, those winds were probably like 60 miles an hour. Yes. And we couldn't, it was almost like a force field, like we couldn't paddle more than a hundred yards in like 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, we paddled, uh, well, we got about, we did about a mile and a half, it took us two and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, where, well, that's a five minute float on a calm day. Yeah, it was crazy. Well, you know, Jim, it's interesting just how every river system really is like its own world, you know, because mm -hmm. coming over from the Columbia and the Snake is like, it's just very different challenges, Oh yeah. you know, and, and uh, the Columbia is a powerful river. It has all these different challenges and, and dangers and also, you know, incredible beauty. And, and uh, now it really feels like I'm, I've entered the Missouri River system and I almost have to learn a new language. Like there's a certain amount of skills that translate over, but then as you're talking to me about the Missouri River and what's to come, it's like, wow, I, I, um, I'm amazed at just how much more there is to learn depending on the river. Well, the thing about the Missouri is, you know, you have a thousand miles of reservoir um, in, but you start off small on these smaller lakes, relatively smaller lakes, and, and that's a great learning experience from when you hit Peck, and then, then, and they, and then Sakakawea, and then the big one. When I got to the yeah. dam at um, Oahe, I was like, that's like a milestone. Oh, I bet. Because yeah. then you start getting some current again? And... You all know, not really. You get current for like five miles down, down to pier. Then you have like sharp. But it's a, it's a, you know, I said, you can get across like sharp in two days, two or three days. It's not this big monster lake. Um, and then you have Francis Case, which is a real, you know, it's a big lake. It's, I don't know, 30... No, it's probably 50 miles long. I don't know exactly that. <clears throat> and then Lewis and Clark. So they get small. They are, they're still big, but they're not Hawaii or Sakakui or, or Peck. Yeah. And so... And what, were, uh, what were some of the other challenges that you experienced on your journey? Because how long did it take you to paddle to the Gulf of Mexico? Uh, 120 days. 120 days. Yeah. And uh, like I'm... Yeah, like what were some of the other things that... Well, the weather. Yeah. I mean, the weather dictates everything. You know, especially on those big reservoirs. And especially in June, in July, in the Dakotas, when, you know, the storm season. And, um, yeah, the weather's, weather rules. Yeah. On a canoe, and, yeah, it's, it's, uh, some... it's the deciding factor in everything, everything you do. Were there like some like tornado storms and? Yeah, I had went through. Uh, I never saw, actually saw a tornado because most of the storms I hit were at night. Um, I had at least three storms with eighty mile plus winds, and one storm had a clocked at a hundred five mile per hour gusts. It wasn't sustained, but um, I wrecked a tent. Uh, I remember sitting in my tent one night. Well, I had, this was like three out of five days in a row that I had these storms. It's kind of like a storm cycle. 
And I remember sitting in my tent and the whole sky was vibrating and it's like you were in, in a disco with the strobes going and lightning and thunder and this roar like a freight train coming coming down. Yeah. And, um, just a deafening roar. It sounded just like a freight train. And my tent's flat. I'm pinned in my tent. I got my life jacket on, my transponder on my life jacket. <clears throat> thinking, well, and I had um, 24 stakes on my tent. Because I, I saw it on my weather tracker that the storm was coming. So, <coughs> excuse me. So I staked out. And uh, these were big military surplus stakes, the V-shaped ones. And I brought a big mallet and a lot of stakes and a lot of, a lot of rope. And so my tent wasn't going to fly away, but it could have got just ripped away. So my advice, I see these guys coming through and they got a little, and I was a four season tent. It was bomber and it still bent all my poles. But um, my advice is get real stakes and a lot of them. And those little backpacking, you know, titanium stakes, leave those at home. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's something I've done for a number of years now is I'll go to um, I'll go to Home Hardware and get like the big nails. Yeah, you know the yeah. eight inch, ten inch nails, and uh, even those are a hell of a lot better than some of those little mm -hmm. dinky plastic stakes that <laughs> you see that come with some of these tents. Right. It's uh, it's interesting though when you're talking about that disco lightning. Um, and uh, just having that kind of heavy storm because the first time I experienced that was about 10 miles from where you grew up. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Millbank, South, yeah. South Dakota. Right. I bicycled from Millbank, South Dakota to Ortonville, Minnesota and set up my tent in the, in the city park there and then got hit by a storm pretty similar to the one you just described. Yes. The yeah. Midwest out there, they, their stor summer storms are pretty uh, impressive. Yeah, yeah, it gives you a, a, a different level of respect for yeah. the power of nature. And um, so, what were some of the what were some of the things that you really gained from your journey, or that just really amazed you or surprised you? Oh, just well, the power of the power of the nature, and then also. Uh, one thing I didn't expect um, or even anticipate or even think about was all the uh, friendships I gained going down river. Um, I set out to be totally self-sufficient. You know, I, I would hit, I, I didn't, wasn't going to walk around the dams, I was going to hitchhike or get a ride. And I didn't really want any help from any so-called river angels. So I didn't make a list of people that I should go see. Um, but I did have a tracker and I was on Norm's uh, Facebook site. So um, people would actually track me down and find me, you know, because I wasn't hiding. I was on a tracker pinged every five minutes. So um, if they wanted to find me, they could. And I had people come up that I hadn't seen since high school or before and find me. And, uh, that was pretty cool. And I drive, a couple of them would drive 200 miles to go take me out for lunch. And I also met all these new friends that I had never met before. They, you know, take me in, and do my laundry, uh, 
give me a place to stay, feed me dinner. And that was really unexpected and um, really probably the best part of the trip. Yeah. 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 I think it's um, that reciprocity of just having people open up their home to you and, and yeah. connect in that way. It's, I think it's just an amazing way to build friendships with people. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's something that I think gets overlooked a lot, you know, in, in our current society where things can become so transactional and, you know, it becomes about just like, you know, it's like you pay to get this work done or to do this or get a ride to here. But then when somebody just comes through for you like that in an unexpected way, all of a sudden you might have a lifelong friendship where you can be like, Hey, let's meet up and paddle this river in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, if you come up to Canada, you know, now you have a place to stay and, and have a place to mm -hmm. can share my world with you. And, uh, is that, um, and so when you were, um, going down the river, were you finding that that just continued all the way down to the Gulf? Oh yeah. Even more so. Um, up in Montana, and uh, you know, there are, I had very few interactions with people because it's so remote. And then, uh, then I got to North Dakota, and I, uh, you know, in South Dakota, I met a couple people that I had known, and they were actually have a cabin down in um, Fort Peck Lake, and they brought a package I had already given them, and they delivered it, and they, and so that was that, and then. But, and then, you know, Peggy at um, Tobacco Gardens is the first, and she's strategically placed where you, it's a perfect spot because you've been on the river for a month already and you need laundry done and something real to eat and maybe an air-conditioned cabin. And she's got all that. And she's, she's a, so, and then from there on down, there's, there are more. I'm not going to go through all the names because it's, I'm going to forget somebody. But um, the farther down you get, the more established these river angels are. And um, so from there on down, you, you you have help and friendships. And when you get down to Missouri, there's a bunch of them. And, and they expect you to come in and they treat you like royalty. It makes some very good friendships along the way. Uh, special. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting when you get that contrast, you know, like even how you reached out to me when I was bicycling over the Rockies and, and then pulling up to your house, I got to say, like, I was pretty exhausted Yes, you were. <laughs> riding this old bike from the 1970s, you know, changing gears with a stick once again, you know, cause I did that in a previous trip with my dad's old bike and, and then <laughs> like I gotta say, like having being able to come here and and meet you guys, it has just been so rejuvenating, and it was really special to have you and and Norm Miller, who um, has been such a spirit animal of the Missouri River, with helping all the paddlers and having both of you join me while I paddling from the headwaters. Um, for the first couple of days was uh, was really special. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, and the Norm, they call him the source. Um, yeah, he's a factor in everything that goes on on the Missouri River. He's a wealth of information, a great guy to paddle with, and you know he, 
he knows every pattern that comes through. He's no, he knows every pattern that's come through for the last hundred years. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, I've, um, I'm only a day or a day and a day and a half down from the headwaters. So I offer my help to people, but they, you know, who needs help me the first day you start your trip? So, but you know, you've been paddling a different trip. So, um, yeah, it's been, been some complications <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. I mean, those first two days were awesome. And then, you know, it was, a. Uh, unfortunate that we had that crazy wind and then pulled our boats out and then a mile from your place that canoe my canoe flew off the roof and yes and uh destroyed got, it got destroyed <laughs> it was a uh, kind of a freak accident but you know it's interesting how when things like that happen it it has it, things have a way of of working out and mm -hmm. and uh i'm just really glad that it sounds as though there's going to be a, a craftsman that will be able to fix it over the winter. And uh, I'm going to have to rename my boat the Phoenix now. Right. <laughs> oh, it'll make it down. They, um, they glue it back together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the nature of these journeys, though. Is there's always going to be some curveballs. Oh, yes. Whether it's your tent being destroyed or my canoe flying off the roof of the car you know, it, it, I think that um, one thing you learn through like these long expeditions is that it could always be worse. And so you kind of almost learn to appreciate the adversity in that, you know, I'm just grateful like the canoe didn't hit a car behind us or destroy your truck or hurt us. You know, the fact that it was just the boat pretty much, it's like, well, it's repairable. So now it, it adds to the story. <laughs> right. That's a minor detail. Just a direct boat. It's not like anybody got hurt. Yeah. Well, it, it's special to like have it be fixed as well. And then it'll be nice to be like, you know, it'll add to the story of the boat when I finally get down to the Gulf next summer. And exactly. Uh, yeah. It, uh, it is special to me that my dad actually um, helped in the designing of that boat as well. Mm -hmm. Like he was telling me that, um, cause my dad was a had adventure guide company and, uh, the mad river guys were paddling up on the wind river in the peel watershed. And, uh, you know, they were kind of, um, passing each other up there and then they camped with, they camped together and we're talking about designs and everything. And, you know, my dad's had his, he spent like a couple decades guiding up there. And so they were going over designs and, and he helped them with some, some of the ideas for that specific revelation design. And then I just, I found this all out after, you know, uh, getting in touch with these guys down in Bellingham who, uh, through Facebook marketplace, and they just happened to have this mad river canoe, which is now discontinued. So it was really special yeah. since I grew up paddling, you know, that boat, um, at home and, uh, to be able to take that you know, from the Pacific Ocean, Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic, or uh, yeah, to the Gulf of Mexico is, is pretty neat. So I was like a little devastated when it first broke because I'm like, oh no. But then as soon as I found out it could be fixed, then it was like, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, it's just a little glitch. Yeah, these things happen. But I'm, I'm grateful that I'll be able to, you know, borrow your boat for 
at least this next section and yep. just kind of get my feet wet, so to speak, uh, paddling down in Fort Benton. Um, the, that Missouri River break section sounds like it's sort of like a, the first real test of remoteness and well on the Missouri. Yeah. I mean, it's remote, but there are other patterns there. Yeah. Uh, so you will see people. Uh, depending on the time of year, when I paddled through there, it was 1st of June, and it was really high water. And I only saw one other boat the whole trip through the, through the breaks, which I think was really probably not very common. There's several thousand people paddle it. But where you're going to get really remote is between the, the end of the break section, which is um, at James Kip Campground, to like UL Bend on the, on, which is a big bend on the, the top of Fort Peck Lake. You won't see anybody there. Yeah. That'll be three or four days of the most remote spot that you'll go through on that, on that whole trip. Uh, so, and so when you um, when you got down to the Mississippi and you were starting to get close to uh, the Gulf, what was going through your mind and what was that feeling like? Oh, it's just I mean, it was kind of my actually it was not my goal to get to the Gulf. I I started the trip just going to St. Louis, and then um, I met four other two groups of two paddlers. Um, Gary and Linda DeCoke, which I, we, I paddled with for a few days. I met them up on Lake Oahe. And then also um, Martin Trahan and Jill Brown. And they had, and we all, we paddled together for a few days and then um, we kind of went our own ways. And then I met up with Jill and Martin in, again in Kansas City. And uh, but when I got about two days above St. Louis, I said, well, I'm, on, I'm just going to go all the way to the Gulf. It's only another month. And because I didn't really didn't want the trip to end. And so I kept going and traveled with Martin and Jill. And then Martin and Jill split up. And then I just traveled with Martin. And we picked up a couple other paddlers on the way. Um, and so... When I got to the Gulf, I really didn't want it to, to end either, but I, I had commitments, and um, that was the end of my trip. Yeah, and and you said it, uh, you told me before that paddling into the Gulf was kind of an overwhelming feeling. Oh, it was. It was just, um, I can't really explain it. All of a sudden, you're, it was like your end goal, and all of a sudden, your trip is over, you're elated, and your trip is over, and you're bummed out, and your trip is over, and you accomplished this pretty good paddle, and it's all this sensory overload. Um, very emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've, uh, I remember that when I paddled the Mississippi from source to sea, and uh, I feel like it's going to be like that on steroids when I finish this journey. <laughs> well, it's a longer trip. You know, it's a thousand miles longer. Yeah. And... Uh, not that that has anything to do with it, but, well, your trip is more than a thousand miles longer. Yeah, it's going to be, oh man, I don't even know. I think it's, I don't know the, I don't know the full mileage. I just know that 
just what I've already gone through to get here has just been undescribable. Yeah, that was the hard part. Now you're just going downhill. <laughs> I don't know. It sounded like there's some challenges coming up. But well, oh, yeah, but um, you're not going up. You're not paddling against the current anymore. Well, that'll be nice. Yes. That'll be very nice. And, you know, I, uh, it was pretty fun that first day when we were able to... You have a, a, a sail for your canoe as well. And when we both had those... Oh, that was incredible. Yeah. And then just a screaming tailwind and left no, poor Norm in the <laughs> dust. <laughs> yeah, that was the fastest I've ever gone in a canoe. Yeah, that was, uh, that was the moment where you have a nice downstream flow... You get the sail up and paddling, and all of a sudden, and we're probably going like 15 miles yeah. an hour. <laughs> yeah, all the conditions will probably never happen again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hold on to that memory. Yeah. And um, and so you um, just to rewind a bit, you um, were a firefighter for how long? Oh yeah, I was a paramedic firefighter for 30 years. Yeah, and what was that experience like for you? Oh, it's the greatest job ever. Um, awesome job. I liked it. Um, and then, you know, you get so... It's a tough job on your body and uh, getting waked up every... You know, we work 24-hour shifts and getting up three or four times a night. When you get to be in your 50s, it's, it's hard on you. Because so, you, you, you pat, celebrated your 60th birthday while paddling down the Missouri. Right. Yeah, that's pretty special. Yeah, it was cool. And yeah, I would buy the moth of the Marias um, on my sixtieth birthday. Yeah, well, that's that's a transformational experience to sort of do something of that magnitude, and and also to develop a new passion for canoeing. You know, that that must have been pretty cool to bring that back with you now that you're. Yeah, you're and done. I, yeah. And I canoe now more, my, my raft, my whitewater raft sits in the garage more than it should because I'm, it's just easier to grab a canoe and, and go out. And, well, you've uh, got a beautiful boat too, that little Winona. Yes, that's I, a great little boat. It's like when we switched on the river, I was just like... You're in a, this, you're in a Maserati now. I know. I was <laughs> using your carbon fiber paddle. That's the first time I've ever used a carbon fiber paddle. And it felt, literally felt like I was holding like a thought. Like it was a piece of air. It is. Yeah. Eight ounces. Yeah. The only thing is you can't you set me. it down. I, I wish I, I didn't, uh, I wish I'd never touched that paddle because <laughs> now I pick up my old aluminum one and it feels like I'm using a baseball bat. Right. <laughs> yeah. You can never drop your carbon fiber paddle or it'll blow away like a paper plate <laughs> I bet yeah. once you get down to those big lakes yeah yeah and so um and so you're a firefighter for for many decades and and uh I think that's it's interesting you know I think there's a big difference when you're doing something that you love for that long you know it sounded like you developed a lot of really great friendships through that oh yeah yeah like um a lot, of, a lot of great guys that I worked with. Very competent guys. You know, yeah. we were a busy department and those guys are very good at what they do. You know, um, I get in a wreck or, or I need a medical aid or a fire and the guys I work with would show up, if they would show up at my house, I'd be um, in good hands. 
think there's something to be said for when you go through adversity with some with people um, and overcome those kind of challenges it it really just creates a another bond like another level of of trust right yep yeah yep. and uh, you also learned how to be a hypnotist through yes. through someone you met through work or your friend yeah one of the guys I worked with uh, he was a hypnotist and he taught me you know our downtime at work he taught me hypnosis and I took a liking to it and I was, I was pretty good at it you know and he used it at, at work I remember seeing him um, we had this young person that had a broken arm and we were on the ambulance together those days and he and so we had to get we had to get on the on the radio to the hospital and ask for an order for morphine to help this kid's pain and while I'm on the radio asking the nurse to you know if we can get give morphine to this kid um, he hypnotized this kid and told me his arm doesn't hurt anymore and he's pain free Wow, that's the first time I saw him hypnotize people. And so I, he taught me how to do it. And then, and then we, all, we also messed around with hypnosis at work. We'd, he'd hypnotize people and um, have them do skits and stuff. And so he, and I, I got into it to help my kids with, with their mental status, and especially in sports. It's great for that. And he taught me. You know, over the years, he would teach me things, and and then uh, I started doing stage shows just uh, because people wanted a hypnotist, and then I learned how to do a stage show. I set up a little a program, and kind of took off from there. So I started doing grad nights and proms, and a lot of high school stuff, and then some nightclubs, and uh, I'm kind of out of it now because. Um, I just kind of lost, didn't lose interest, but just other things to do. Yeah, you've been paddling a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what is, what exactly is hypnotism and, and what is that experience like? Like how do you, well, how do you do that? Hypnotist, hypnosis is a bit hard to explain because no one really knows how it works. Even psychiatrists don't know how it works. Uh, was pretty fascinating. It kind of when I hypnotize somebody, I'm 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 talking them through self hypnosis. So you're hypnotizing yourself, and if you're open and willing to let that happen, um, I can talk you through a, like a meditation type thing, and you can actually become hypnotized. Um, your health, your self hypnotized. I don't have control over it, over a person, but I can give them suggestions. On to help them um, or do a skit or think that they're a giraffe or help them with smoking or, or not smoking or it's a bit complicated and I don't even understand it how it works but it does work and it's, and it's real and um, it, um, yeah that's just about all I can say about it that so when you you've been <clears throat> hypnotized you've you've been hypnotized as well and so yes. you know what that feels like yes 
And how would you describe that, that feeling? Uh, it's like a meditative feeling. Uh, it's very relaxing. And people that are hypnotized are open for it because it is, it's, you know, it's like a yoga. It's almost like a yoga or meditation. And, you know, basically for, for every 15 minutes you're hypnotized, it's like you're getting a four-hour power nap. Even though you're not asleep, your mind is hyper alert. Um, you're getting a power nap, and people thrive on that. They like, you know, get hypnotized, and they go, "Sure, I love. It. I do. It. I've been hypnotized before. I'd love it. I'll hypnotize me." Wow. And they wake up and they feel, "I haven't felt this good in a long time." So it's almost like <clears throat> a part of yourself is asleep, and another part of yourself is like really awake. Yeah, kinda. Uh, your body's very relaxed. Uh, you can yeah. tell when somebody's hypnotized. I can spot a hypnotized person, and I can tell when they're going to go out. And, um, you know, their, their blood kind of drains. They get pale, and they get cool. Their body's slot. You know, you're, you don't, you're not holding it. Everything just kind of relaxes. All your muscles relax. And even your head. You can't hold your head up. But your mind is going is just open. Wow. Yeah. And so what are, what are some of the like meaningful hypnosis that you've done or you've seen or you've helped people with hypnosis? Oh, I've done a lot with, with people that want to eat better or, or quit smoking or quit drinking. And every hypnotist has a different way of dealing with that. You know, some, some like say, uh, some people say you can open the refrigerator and there's a piece of cake in there. And you take a piece of cake and it tastes like tar. So it tastes terrible, you're never gonna do it. Where I found that I use a more positive reinforcement. I said you open that refrigerator and that piece of cake is there, but for some reason you don't really don't want it, but you see that carrot sitting right next to it and you eat that carrot and it tastes wonderful. And every time you eat a carrot, you can feel your body getting more healthy and rejuvenated. And it, it seems to work better than a negative reinforcement. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And the same thing with smoking. You know, some, um, a lot of hypnosis, and it's not wrong. People say, yeah, you taste that cigarette, and it tastes like you're just you're smoking battery acids. It tastes terrible. Um, and I'll give them the suggestion. This, and hypnosis is just the power of suggestion. That's all it is. It's, you're suggesting things. And, and I'll say, hey, you just got a pack of cigarettes, but you realize that every time you don't smoke that cigarette, you can feel your, all that clean air coming in your body. And every time you breathe that air out, it's blowing all those toxins out. And that seems to work better than smoking battery acid. Uh, sucking clean air, not battery acid. So um, that's my philosophy on, on that kind of hypnosis. Yeah. And so you say with, with sports, like you, you think that there's a lot of high level athletes that use hypnosis? Oh, absolutely. Yes. A lot of top athletes have a, have a hypnothera hypnotherapist. Or, or not, if not that, they know how to hypnotize yourself themselves into um, a positive thinking yeah um, so you watch like a, the Olympics and you watch uh, say a pole vaulter at the end of the runway 
and they'll sit there with their eyes closed and they're, they're, they're contemplating every step. They're contemplating that pole plant in the box, you know, how their hands are working, how their arms are working, where they're looking, and they're going through that, that whole vault in their mind before they even take that first step down the runway. And that's all, that is a form of hypnosis. They're, um, they're imagining every step. And a golfer, you'll see them, they'll look at that putt and then they just stand there and they, they watch that ball roll into the hole uh, before they even hit the ball. And um, that's, yeah. that's a form of self-hypnosis. Interesting. And so what kind of hypnosis have you done with sports for, for people? Well, mostly with my kids. They're, they're baseball and softball players. And I have them imagine, the, you know, release the pitcher releasing the ball. And the ball, as it gets closer, it gets slower and bigger. And you can see the revolution. You can see the laces. And by the time it gets to the, belt, to the ball plate, it's standing still and they're hitting a... a a beach ball and so they walk up and you'll see the kids they'll walk up and they'll sit there and they'll close their eyes and they'll imagine that and then they're ready to hit the ball you know pitch comes in and um, it's not actually truly happening of course but in their mind they're you know it's all vision and watching that and, and, you know of course with muscle memory and stuff um, it that's fascinating it, it is fascinating yeah, because I guess you you do you've done a lot of shows, and you're using this power of suggestion on people, and I guess you you can see who is really resonating with it, and kind of weed out the folks that their mind is kind of not letting them <clears throat> go yeah. through that experience. Or? Yeah, and so if I do a if I do a uh, a show, a stage show, I don't go out and pick volunteers. I ask volunteers to come up. So here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to be in control of you. I'm not going to have you do anything that I wouldn't do. Um, and so I gain some trust. And um, so I, I give them a little talk and they come up, they volunteer. And some of them, as they're walking up on stage, I shake their hand and, and give them a handshake and put them out right. And they just go to the floor before they even get on the stage. Wow. And because they want it to happen. They're coming up, they're volunteering, they want this to happen, and their mind's open. And if I pick a person out of the stage and he doesn't want to get hypnotized, he it's not going to happen because he doesn't, he's, he or she does not want it to happen. And, um, and like I said, I'm not going to hypnotize you. I'm, through, I'm talking through self-hypnosis. And yeah. so that's how that works. And so what are, what are some of the wild things that you've seen <clears throat> through hypnotizing people and you know with shows and oh it's just everybody has a different mind and everybody interprets things differently uh you know if i tell someone that they are a ostrich and they're in a desert and there's 10 people up there doing it i'm going to get 10 different responses that's what's fascinating about it yeah so when I do a show, I don't, I don't do a show where I, I uh, bring people out and tell them they're all uh, gorillas and they're going to run around the stage like a gorilla and they're all kind of doing the same thing. 
I'll pick a, I like to have them use their imagination. And so I'll say, I'll, su I'll suggest that say you're a, uh, you're sitting on a beach and you're watching out and you see this blue sky and the blue ocean and the surfers out there. All of a sudden you see Jaws, the shark coming in. And I'll play Jaws music. And so there's 10 people and you get 10 different reactions. Some people are just, they just freeze in, fr in fright. <clears throat> and some people will hop in a skiff and paddle out there like a madman and throw a harpoon at it. <laughs> All of them, you know, physically, you'll see them lift a the harpoon and stab this thing. And, and so I like to let them use their imagination rather than just tell them that they're uh, a tree and there's, um, I do that too, but toward the end of the shows, I like to use, I like to, not only that, because I like to, I'm interested in seeing how their thought process goes. Yeah, that must be pretty fascinating for you as a hypnotist, watching how people react in such oh, it is. different ways. Yeah. It's amazing. And another thing I used to do is I'll take a roll of toilet paper and I'll say, these are $20 bills that I make in my garage. I got a roll of $20 bills and uh, um, hand it to the person, take one and, uh, and pass it down, down, down the line. Some will take one, they'll look at it, some will take a piece, they'll tear, carefully tear a piece out, fold up, put in their pocket. The next one will do the same. The next one might tear a piece off and give it to the next person. And you get down there, and somewhere along the line, someone's going to take that roll and just start unrolling it. Stuff it in their pockets. They'll look around, make sure no one's looking at them, and uh, that's interesting. You were you were telling me about this Martian one that you do. Yeah, that's a skit that I like to do. Yeah, and what 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 does that entail? Well, I'll, I'll typically take uh, three subjects and tell one person that he is come from Mars, been traveling for for millions of light years or whatever, and he lands in whatever town I'm doing the show at, and he just happened to land there. And, and the next person would be a, a news reporter with a TV news reporter. And luckily, she'd been taking the only person on earth that speaks Martianese. And I mean, what luck is that? And breaking news, you know, breaking news, headline news. And then they'll have, uh, usually have another person that's uh, uh, doing sign language for the hearing impaired. And it's fascinating to watch these people speak in Martian to each other, and then translate to the news camera. And I mean, the, who knows what they're talking about? Whether they can understand each other, but the, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty <laughs> fascinating what they what they come up with. Why these Martians have come to Earth to to. Uh, visit Earth and what they're here for. Some are here to start a war. Some are here to as friendly travelers. Some are here, we had one that was here to harvest pigs. They wanted to kill wild boars. Of course, the news reporter was just in awe that that's the only reason he'd come here is to kill wild boars. And um, but they're all different. I mean, I have no idea what they're gonna, what they're gonna come up with. Wow. That's one of my favorite things to, 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 to see.
Yeah, the amount of imagination that, yes. I mean, you as suggesting these things and then seeing them with yeah. their own unique personalities and experiences and ideas yes. coming forward. And on that particular skit, I don't suggest anything except that this Martian showed up on Earth for, for an unknown reason. I'll let, I'll let them wing it from there. <laughs> Sounds absolutely <laughs> yeah. hilarious. It's really, that's really fascinating. And what do you think is one of the more powerful hypnosis um, practices like that you know you could do just to improve people's lives? Like you talked about, you know, helping people with food and and sports and and uh, lifestyle. But is there like some positive mentality? Ones well, that for sure. And um, like I said, I'm not hypnotizing. I'm just talking through self hypnosis and people who meditate. Uh, do the same thing. Um, you hypnotize yourself every day. If you're driving down the road, and how many times do you drive down the road and you've gone 10 miles and you have no idea how you got there without running off the road? Your mind's in another state. <clears throat> That's self-hypnosis. If, if you're reading a book and you're so absorbed in this good chapter that everything's blocked out, that's, that's self-hypnosis. Yeah. So it's not like it's uh, magic. It's, we, do it, we all do it all day long. Yeah, interesting. And so <clears throat> to take that to you know, self-improvement or trying to help make your life better. Yeah, and yeah. the thing about going to a hypnotherapist is uh, it's like you can, you can get a program on the computer now like one of those spinning wheels and wa or watch that and, and put yourself out and get a 15 minute rest. But there's that self-preservation mode that you're always thinking about what happens if the doorbell rings or the fire alarm rings or, or I fall off my chair while I'm sitting here. It, the, the beauty of a hypnotherapist is you trusting yourself for him to watch over you, to hypnotize you and kind of be in control so you can actually go, you go deeper down into hypnosis. So there's levels to it. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah anywhere from barely being hypnotized to um, very deep. So do people not remember sometimes when they... Uh, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Yeah. Uh, as a show, when I do a show... <laughs> I, when I when before the show's over, I said, when, okay, when we come out of this show, you're going to remember everything that you did. Uh, you were the star of the show. Uh, we did nothing to embarrass you. Uh, and usually I'll give them a positive thing. You know, from now on, you are going to, when it comes time to sleep, when your head hits the pillow, it's time to sleep. All your worries from the day will be gone. You're going to realize that uh, all your friends, your school teachers, your your best friends, your worst friends are all, you're going <clears> to <throat> recognize them and tell them what you think, that, how, what they mean to you in your life and kind of give them a positive, you know, going away. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, that's always nice. And that, and that stays with them for a while. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And... So then I also give them a suggestion. Anytime you want to go through this, through this, as learns, uh, hypnosis is a learned, uh, 
learn progression. The more you do it, the more you accept it, and the better you become at it. And so I just tell them, you know, whenever they have a problem, there's different ways of doing it. Just like there's a hundred different ways of putting someone in hypnosis. Um, I'll say, if you got a, if you got a problem and you want to figure it out, just take your thumb and middle finger and press on it and focus on nothing but that. And just push yourself out for 10 minutes and, and those problems that you're having right now are, you'll realize how minuscule they really are. And, and the more they do that, the more they get better at it. That's just fascinating to me. Um, and it makes you wonder what aspect of our humanity, you know, allows for us to go into that state. And, yeah. you know, how did we evolve to develop a mechanism like that? And clearly it's very powerful because it taps into your imagination and, yes. and your ability to also change reality, like your reality and the way you feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going back to that question. People do remember and because otherwise, I could also say, hey, you're not going to remember a thing about this hypnosis show you did. But what fun is that for the person that, I mean, the people in the audience had fun, but what fun is that for the person that is hypnotized? He doesn't remember doing any of it. All he remembers is, you know, he goes back onto the, back to his chair and people tell him all the stuff he did. And he goes, oh, well, okay, but it would have been nice if I remembered doing it. So you can suggest for people to remember everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you, you were also saying, like, even with cards, you can get people to remember the back of a card. Oh, and not only that, some people can remember phone books. Give them a phone book to remember, a paste in a phone book, and they'll remember, say, what is uh, um, Terry Smith's number? They'll be able to recite it. Wow. I wonder yeah. if that's, like, the power of the subconscious mind. Oh, exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. The subconscious mind. Like, letting that have more sway over what it is that you can do or, or think you know, about. So, and a lot of people yeah. are better at it than others. Um, some people can't remember, but some people can remember a whole page in a phone book. Wow. What are some of the other kind of remarkable, almost superpowers that you've seen people do? Uh, the most one, the one that I cannot figure out is, um, I, use, I like to do this card thing where I'll take a, take a card out or I'll, I'll fan a piece of a deck of cards out and have a person pull a card out and memorize the back side of the card, not the face card, but the back side. And they'll study something. I mean, you can see their, their focus is so intense. Um, that's all they're thinking about. And sometimes it takes a minute, sometimes it takes 10 minutes. They memorize this card, and I can put it back in the deck, and they'll pull that card out. And so they'll show me or the audience the face card before we put it back so everybody knows what it is. And they'll go through the whole deck one at a time. Sometimes they go through it two or three times to find that. And then they'll start um, putting a pile. These are maybes. These are definitely outs. And they go, and then by the time, and they may go through the maybes twice. And they, they pick that card up. And I had one gal go through this, and she was she was very good um, subject. She'd come down to uh, these cards, and she'd have all these cards. And go, well, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't find the card. Um, but I know what it was. It was a, it was a jack of hearts. <laughs> and I, can't, I still can't figure this out. She goes, well, how do you know that? 
and it was, it was the jack of hearts. So we'd do it ten times, it was the, the ace of spades. She could do it every time. And uh, she says, I couldn't see the card, I couldn't see what it was, but I could see that ace of spades burning a hole in the corner of the back side of the card. Weird. So, so she was looking at the back side of the card, but somehow she always knew. She knew what the front side was. Yes. Wow. And I can't, I have no idea. It's the only time I've seen that happen. And I was fascinated by it. We did, we were on a raft trip. Yeah. Like a five or ten day raft trip, I don't remember. And, uh, we hypnotized her every day and she did it every single time. So would, it mean would, you need to go to Vegas. Wow. <laughs> So would it be like the same card, or was she no, doing totally different, different cards card. every single time? Yeah. And she always whatever knew. card she picked out, just when you get one or fifty-two chances, like she'd shuffle it, you'd, she'd pick out a card, yeah, and then somehow just looking at the back side, she'd be able to know the front yeah. side of the card. I said, "How do you know that?" And she said, I could see that that eight of diamonds burning a hole in the corner of the card. It's like this, I, that's all, you know. Wow, that's that the power funky. of the mind. Yeah. Uh, have you seen people move in, in ways that were unexpected? Like like do things like acrobatically or, or Oh gosh. The first show I ever did, um I had this my uh, my brother called me and he wanted me I was just doing practicing hypnosis. I had no shows worked out. And he called and said his his daughter was uh, you know, graduated from work graduated from high school and they wanted to do an after graduation party. So I worked up a show, you know, kind of schematic. And toward the end of the show, I, I said, hey, what, does anybody have any special skills they can show us? And this was in Colorado. And this young kid says, I can, I can snowboard. Well, I said, okay, let's see a snowboard across the stage. You know, there was no snowboard. He just, and he starts kind of moving around. And then he runs. And there's, a, you know, they're all sitting in folding chairs. He was sitting on there. His folding chair is empty. He runs up and steps on the chair and does a full back, full gain, full gain of backflip and just sticks this landing. Whoa, like off the chair. Off the chair. And of course, this chair's up on about a two foot tall stage. The chair goes flying and my heart stops. This kid's going to end up, you know, in midair. He's not my first show and I got a broken neck. This kid just sticks it. Whoa. And, <laughs> and so. After the show, you know, the, the, everybody, everybody's, everybody in the whole ass heart just stops. This, we're going to have a huge injury here. Yeah. And so after the show, we're, we're, we're talking to this case. Oh, I can do a full gainer on the, on the slope on my snowboard. I've never tried it on land before. Whoa. And uh, I learned a lot on that show. Um, i got to be careful yeah. what I ask physically people to do, you know. So... Wow, I learned a lot, and I never did that. <laughs> never did that kind of thing again. That's uh, that's incredible. So, just being able to use self hypnosis for people to open up abilities that they didn't even yeah. know they had. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> so, what is it? Um, what are some things, Jim, that you would through? You've had a very interesting life. You've done a lot of different things, and and what are some things that you would suggest for like a younger you or, or, a, or a younger person who's trying to live their dreams and, and do things that allow them to sort of 
pursue a, a life that makes them happy? Um, just do things. You know, don't, don't always put things off for tomorrow. You know, do it today. Yeah. Tomorrow might not be here. Um, don't find an excuse to, to do, don't find an excuse to put things off. Just go out and do it. You know, yeah. There's always an excuse. You got, I can't do it because I got to get my, you know, whatever. I got to get my oil changed in my car tomorrow. I can't go today. Well, put that off for a few days and just go do it. I, I resonate a lot with that. I think you're right. We can push things forward so far that it You'll ends never up do it. that you never do it. Right. And being able to break that spell. Yeah. yeah. And do things that are, I mean, everybody's different. Some people don't like that kind of stuff, but you know, if people ask me why I did this trip, isn't it hard? I go, yeah, it was hard. But if it was easy, why would you, what would be the point? You know, just, yeah, you know, a lot of stuff I do the hard way. You know, I hunt the hard way. You're, um, you're a bow hunter. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a bow hunter and I shoot a traditional bow that I made. I don't get a lot of harvest with it, but um, I like doing it because it's, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think most things that are worthwhile and it takes time, like you, you, you have to put an effort to build it and grow it. Yeah. And I think that there's this idea that, you know, life is the good things in life are going to be easy, but it actually seems to be kind of the opposite. I mean, I think when you initially discover something, there's an element to it where it's like, oh, it's easy. This is incredible. But then to go from that point and to continue to build it and to, yes. it's going to take effort and creativity and growth. Yeah, exactly right. Just do it today. That's my, you know, of course you can't do it today, but if you're going to go a trip like that, it takes some planning. Yeah. But don't let the planning take over to a point where you don't end up right. finally taking that leap. Right. And on a river trip, if you plan too much and things don't go exactly as you plan, some people can't handle that. It's just, everything's not set perfectly done chronological order. And as soon as you push off the river, you're on river time. Now, yeah. If things don't go as planned and you're not ready for that, people have a hard time with that. But if you just kind of get that, well, okay, here's today, tomorrow's another day, it seems to work better for that, for that kind of trip. As you know, you can't plan 10 minutes, you know, much less 10 days ahead. Right, so it's like having that larger goal, but the way that you get there, realize that there's like infinite variations. Yes, yeah, a goal for the day maybe, or a goal for the next hour maybe. Yeah. Uh, and do you feel, how, how do you feel different after, you know, you, you paddled the Missouri River from the headwaters to the Gulf and do you feel like you're in a different space now than when you were before? Oh yeah, you'd have to. Um, if that doesn't change you, then, you know, nothing will. I, I'd say I'm, 
I don't know, it's hard to explain. A lot of people that would do that um, have a hard time, really have a hard time adjusting back into the mainstream, I guess you'd call it. Um, it takes a long time to, when, when you're done, it'll, it'll take you a long time to get back into the mainstream. You never really will because, um, and you can tell people about their trip that you've done, but unless they've done it, they're not going to understand even a fraction of what you're telling them. You know, just because it's not the way they're wired. Yeah, or they, I feel as though some people, they resonate with it. Like they, either it's something that they have a calling for and want to do, or they've done some journey or something yeah, equivalent yeah. That, yeah. That, that resonates that part of who they are. But then there's also some people where you talk to them about these kind of journeys and it's almost like it, it's like speaking a different language. Right. It just goes right over their head. Yeah, there's only a, I mean, a fraction of the population that even want to do a trip like that. It's yeah. just, you know, it's just, we're all different. You know, 99.9% of the population, they wouldn't want to do that trip. Um, yeah. For whatever reason. Well, I think there's like, and I think it's interesting because it, in some ways, like, everybody has some calling or dream. You oh, know, for sure. Dreams that yeah, speak to different. them. Yeah. And that's where it's, um, that's what fascinates me is that it's like, that's the commonality is that, you know, people have, I think a lot of people have that voice within them of, of self-actualization and, and doing something difficult that's meaningful to them that they've always wanted to do. And, but it's like this mountain that you have to climb mm -hmm. to do it. And it's daunting and, uh, you can put it off and, but going through that process, you know, step by step, it change, it does change you. Yeah. You know, and oh, it does. yeah. I mean, I, and it's interesting for me cause, uh, you know, I've, I've done a few journeys now, bicycled across the U S when I was 21, canoe the Missouri, uh, the canoe, the Mississippi river, bicycle from the Arctic down to San Francisco. And then now this journey canoeing across America is like my Everest in some ways, like it's the biggest trip, hardest thing I've ever tried to do. Well, then you have to do something harder next time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but through that, it's like, it's interesting where I, I meet people who have done something equivalent or they've gone on their, like some big quest or journey and I, and I can immediately see it. It's like, I, I can, I feel like the kindred spirit energy, like they get it. Yeah. You know, yeah. they've, they've taken that leap and, and you're right. Like there's more journeys to be had, but just having those doors open. You know, each journey like opens up a new door mm -hmm. of just realizing new depths of who you are and how you're able to connect with the world and connect with other people. Like uh, that's something that is constantly blowing my mind is just how um, abundant the world really is. If you're open to it, if you're willing to connect and open up to people in a genuine way, just how like, yeah, that's reciprocated and, and, and in ways you would never have expected, you know, in moments where it's almost like, like the universe and people are there for you in ways that you couldn't have predicted. And, uh, it kind of makes me, it definitely makes me feel like there's some greater forces at work sometimes when you really need help. And then all of a sudden it's like the universe conspires to, to be there for you 
you know, where people just somehow have that sense and they're there. Right. And, and you also put yourself in a position to, um, whether it's getting help or, or, or uh, making a goal for yourself, you, you put yourself in a position to, to get that done too. Uh, yeah, so. like when you have that greater goal, then yes. you kind of are navigating in a way that opens you to, you yeah. see, opens you to those opportunities that are going to help you get there. Right. Yeah, that's true. Well, so what are, any any last thoughts? Um, it's something I always ask people at the end of my show. And uh, we did, I did ask you this before on the river. Um but if you had one year left to live, what is it that you would do and, and why? Uh, I would try to spend more time with my kids and my family um, and live, you know. Probably not too much different than I'm doing now. I wouldn't do anything drastic. I just try to. And, appreciate every moment of the, my last year yeah that's yeah well it's uh it's interesting how to me that answer shows that you are living a life already that you you love to a large extent yeah yeah i am I'm re- you know i finally retired i'm living in the middle of montana you know i won't want it I couldn't pick a better place to live as far as doing the stuff I like to do wouldn't be for everybody but um, yeah I'm at the age now where I'm not going to change the world I'm not going to you know I'd like maybe if I had a year left I'd like to go visit a few places that I haven't been but other than that uh, I would just savor every moment that I got which I'm trying to do right now because I'm I'm 65. I might not make it another year. Or I could make it 30 years. Who knows? Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> and what, what is the biggest difference between 65-year-old Jim and 20-year-old Jim? Oh, <laughs> 65-year-old Jim doesn't move like 20-year-old Jim. <laughs> <laughs> My mind still thinks I can do it. The body sometimes says otherwise. Well, you're, you're pretty damn good shape for 65, well, I must say. Well, for 65, my knees are gone. I can't hike like I used to. Um, in my mind, I can. Um, but, you know, it's just... Uh, I'm probably mellower than I was. Yeah. You know, it's because I think everybody is. It's kind of really well, just goes with the territory. Yeah. What are some of the things that you've grown since then that you you really appreciate now you know that maybe you didn't know then oh I don't know uh, I try to be nicer to people you know just because I realize everybody's an individual whether they're whatever their lifestyle or whatever their social status uh, we're all individuals and we're all human and try to see what they see, you know, instead of like, oh, there's nothing like me. Why should we be friends? But, you know, when you get to talk to people, you realize, well, what we are like. We are kind of the same. 
So yeah, like we're we're all different, but we all can relate to one another. Yeah, there's a lot of commonality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jim, thank you so much for talking with me. You're uh, oh my pleasure. We I'm I'm just so so grateful to be able to spend time with you guys, and and it's special that we're gonna be able to do that while I'm transitioning into this next stage of my journey. The easy part's coming up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the downstream section. Yes. And hopefully, you know, you'll be able to join me and, and we'll yeah. be able to paddle some more of this river. Yeah. And you might see on Peck next summer. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks for coming. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of the Journey to the Heart podcast. For regular updates about my canoe journey across America, my music and other creative projects, be sure to check out my Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube pages at Torlokes and Tornlokes. Don't forget the silent H. You can also follow my journey and join my mailing list at www.tornlokes.com.